Imagine with me a married couple where the wife really adores almost everything about her husband. But, perhaps like some wives, I don't know, uh, there are a few qualities about him that she finds kind of grating. Uh, And not just grating, but she's really uncomfortable with them and even embarrassed by them. Now, there's nothing wrong with him. It's just that these couple of qualities don't quite meet her tastes. Particularly, she's embarrassed by what he does for a living. She always thought that she would marry a doctor or a lawyer or someone with a really showy, like wonderful profession you can brag to your friends about. And instead, you know, he provides well, he's good at his job, but it's a rather plain and boring job that you can't impress anyone with at a party. And so she's a little embarrassed, a little uncomfortable with that. And when he laughs, He lets out the heartiest belly laugh that has won him many friends, but just embarrasses her and uh, she's uncomfortable with. Now, that probably seems rather normal. There are many people like that, but imagine that she handles this in a strange way. Uh, Imagine that she handles her discomfort and her embarrassment with some of her husband's qualities by trying to pretend those things aren't even there. And by trying to hide these things about her husband from her friends. Uh, Her friends ask what he does for a living and she just gets kind of sheepish and changes the subject. And no one actually really knows what her husband does for a living. They have gatherings at their house and she's on pins and needles the whole time just fearing, oh, I hope he does not laugh in front of them and embarrass us all. Hides it. Hides it from herself. Hides it from others. And the question I want to ask is, does this sound like anything close to a healthy marriage for you? Uh, Can you possibly have good health in your marriage when some of your spouse's good qualities you are embarrassed by, even pretending don't exist and are trying to hide from others? Uh, I think we'd all agree that's not healthy. It's not a good foundation. When things get difficult later on, it's not a good foundation to get you through the hard times in a marriage. Now, that may sound a little strange, a little absurd. You know, what married couple would really act like that? I don't know. Uh, But here's the point. When it comes to being uncomfortable with some of his good attributes, being embarrassed by some of his good attributes, and therefore kind of trying to pretend that those attributes aren't there and trying to hide them from friends, that is exactly what the American church has done to God for about 200 years we have emphasized his really good tasting characteristics, right? His great love for his people, his undying love for his people. We will preach that for another 200 years, I bet. And we won't exhaust it when we do. We have emphasized his great mercy toward those in need, his great grace toward sinners who are in need. So many of his qualities that we find tasty and palatable, we've emphasized those But when it comes to his righteous anger that burns against sinners, when was the last time in many churches we have heard something like that? In fact, we don't even know what to do with it. In fact, our friends ask about it. Is God really angry with sin? Does he really have wrath towards sinners? Does he really justly punish those in sin? We get embarrassed and try to change the subject and move it back to something more tasty. 
And that is why we so greatly need stories like the one we are going to read this morning. Every once in a while, as you walk through the books of the Bible, you'll come across a story where you just cannot deny the full picture of God who does love us greatly and is merciful toward those in need and has all those great tasting qualities we talk about all the time, but also because he is just and righteous and good, does have a wrath toward those who persist in sin and does justly punish the wicked. And so this morning, as we desperately need him to, the Lord will point us to a full picture of him, a fuller picture than some of us have embraced in a while, and thereby will force us to cling to the safety and refuge that we have through Jesus Christ. Before we get into it, I'll just mention, this is part of why we preach through books of the Bible in order. You can't skip over the passages you don't like when you're preaching through the whole book. We're forced to look at this story today. We'll read the story of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which comes next to us in our study of the book of Genesis. If you've got your Bible open, I ask you to open it to Genesis chapter 19, and we will read one of the starkest descriptions there is of God's destruction of those who persist in wickedness. Before the story, there are two angels who are appearing as men, and they are going to visit a man named Lot, who is Abraham's, the main character's, nephew, who lives in a city called Sodom. It says, the Lord writes, there are two angels that came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. And so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast, and he baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And Lot went to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters that have not known any man. Let, them bring, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came here to sojourn, and now he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot, and they drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, that's the angels, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping at the door. And then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, daughters, sons, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become so great before the Lord. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his two sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But they seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered 
And so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And God said to them, oh, no, my, sorry, Lot said to them, oh, no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. You show me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. And therefore the name of that city is called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of that land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The words of the Lord. We have here a fearsome picture of the devastating judgment that is awaiting sinners at the return of Jesus Christ. And through it, God is moving us to cling urgently to the safety and refuge that is found in Jesus, as well as forcing us to look at sides, aspects of his character that we might want to pretend are not there so that we can have a more full and complete picture of God. That would enrich our worship of him. It would enrich so many aspects of the Christian life where our picture more full and complete of him. The Apostle Paul says in the New Testament of the Old Testament, which is the part of the Bible that the story is in, that it is able to make you wise for salvation, which is a way of saying that the truths in the Old Testament prepare you to receive the gospel. They get you to a place of wisdom where you are ready to receive the good news of Jesus. Now, the Old Testament does not explicitly lay out the gospel for us nor does it name the name of Jesus Christ, the name we must call upon to be saved. But if we receive its message, it leaves us in a place where we are ready to cry out the name of Jesus to be saved from the destruction that awaits us. Uh, let me explain a little bit of what I mean. The gospel is simply the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. He was the son of God, lived a perfect life, died and rose, and in his death, he pays for the sins of those who trust in him, thereby sparing us judgment. Now, to be saved, that is all you need to believe. And that will change your life and make you new completely. But that news will sound like foolishness to you. You'll reject it outright if you do not believe 
what I'm going to put forward as truth number three today. There are three things you've got to see first. The third one, our deserved judgment that we are headed for. Full and total destruction, devastation that we are both headed for and deserve. If you do not see and embrace that, well, then you don't believe that you need to be saved. And so the free offer of salvation in Jesus really doesn't make much sense. And it sounds absurd, a stumbling block to those who won't believe it. But in order to believe truth number three and embrace it, that is the judgment, we have to embrace truth number two. And that is our complete refusal to worship and obey God as he has commanded us to. If we don't believe that we have completely disobeyed him, if we don't sense the depth of our sin, then we don't realize that we are deserving of judgment and we won't cling to Jesus for salvation. You see the logic there. So that's truth number two, the depth of our sin. But even that does not make sense. We will not receive it. We will reject it outright if we do not believe truth number one, which is that there is a God in heaven worthy of our complete worship and obedience. If there's no God in heaven, well, then the idea of our sins against him just make no sense. We'll reject that. The thought of judgment is laughable and perhaps even hateful, and the need to cling to Jesus just isn't even there. So in order to be prepared to receive the gospel, we must see the holiness of God in heaven, his worthiness to be worshiped and obeyed in all of life. Then since our failure to do so, then thirdly, since the judgment we deserve, and then finally, we are ready to cling to Jesus for salvation from that judgment. I say that because truths number two and three, sin and judgment, are made so poignantly clear in this story. This is perhaps one of the most stark and devastating pictures of sin and judgment in the whole Bible. And so we will spend perhaps a little longer than normal this morning just dwelling on those pictures. We won't let them pass by until we receive them fully so that we can be completely ready, all of us, to receive salvation from Jesus. So in our time remaining this morning, I'll walk through those three in order. Then we'll talk about the good news of Jesus and the relief and safety he brings sinners and then I will call you to place your faith and trust in him. Let's consider truth number one first. And that is God's complete worthiness to be worshipped and obeyed in all of our lives. A reader of Genesis, if they were starting at chapter one and have now gotten to chapter 19, they would have much of this already since. They would already have read the story of creation and how God made the seas and the air and the earth and drew the mountains up out of the ocean and filled it all with life. And you read all of that and you're just left in awe of this God that we worship. And you're left with a sense in the story of creation that this God that has made all of this, whoever made the grass in this field is worthy of our worship. Do you see the glory around us in creation? To consider that God has given life to all these trees and all this grass and put the sun up in the sky and given to all of us life, well, it's not hard to sense that if he is real and in heaven, then he is worthy of our full worship. And then in chapter 2, you would read about him making mankind, making us, naming us man. So he names us because he's got authority over us. And then giving us rules. We can eat from this and that, but we cannot eat from this one tree. A rule that might sound a little absurd, a rule that might sound a little too particular, but we have no argument against him because he is the God and we are the creatures. 
So we have no right to say, hey, how come we can't eat out of that tree? Why can't we eat out of all the other trees? His rules are his rules because he has complete authority to command us however he pleases. What he is owed from us then is full worship, complete worship all the time, reverent worship, and complete obedience in every hour of the day. We see this painted a little differently in Isaiah 6, which we read earlier this morning for our confession of sin together. You read there of the heavenly creatures that surround the throne of God. There's a real God in heaven in a real throne room, and Isaiah gets a glimpse of this. He's a holy man of God. He gets to see God in his throne room, and there are these heavenly creatures who have never sinned, never rebelled against any of God's commands, and in their holiness... They are before him, it looks like all the time, calling out, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they've got six wings. They're only flying with two of those wings. With the other two, they are covering their face and then the other two covering their feet. Because even they and their sinlessness cannot bear their face or their feet. They cannot bear anything before the Lord God in his glory and his holiness. We have there a picture of how worthy he is to be worshipped. That those great creatures, that if you or I were to see these heavenly creatures, we would probably mistakenly fall down and worship them. They cover themselves and ceaselessly cry out, holy, holy, holy before him. How worthy is he of our reverent worship in every hour of our lives? Completely worthy of it. And worthy as well to be completely obeyed. Every last command, no matter how absurd it may sound, in every moment of our lives. So there is truth number one. His worthiness to be worshipped and obeyed fully and completely by every human on earth. Is he worthy of that? Yes, he is. For holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you must embrace that. You must receive that completely before this story of Sodom and Gomorrah makes any sense. It looks just absurd and out of place if we forget what we just talked about. So now we move to truth number two, which is our complete failure to worship and obey him in our lives. And that is seen just so starkly and so tragically in this story. So let's look back at chapter 19 together. And I'll just point out a few details that show us just how much we have failed to worship our God. There is some question as to what exactly the sin of Sodom was. You know, what did they do that deserved this kind of early destruction? And some have tried to say that it is simply homosexuality and that that's it. Uh, But the Bible paints a much more full and complete picture. The book of Ezekiel in chapter 16 points to their pride. It points to their treatment of the poor and abuse of the poor. And it does point to abominations they committed, and that's probably one of them. Matthew 10 points to their lack of hospitality. And Jude 7 does indeed point to their immorality and their unnatural desires. So we should look for those things in the details of this story. If you look with me, you can see in verse 1 and verse 2 that there is only one person in the public city gate who offers hospitality to these visitors, and it's Lot. And we talked about that three weeks ago. Uh, 
that's a hint at how unhospitable, inhospitable the men of Sodom were. And you can see in verse 3 that Lot has to press them, right? They don't want to accept his hospitality, but he presses them, saying, no, this is not a safe place. You cannot stay in the town square tonight. A sign that these men are not only inhospitable, but they are dangerous, right? There's hospitality, then there's a lack of hospitality, and then there's a dangerous place. And that's what Sodom is. In verse 4, you can see several indications that the wickedness of the city extended to every last man of every generation. It says all of the men, both young and old, everyone to the last man. So there is not an innocent man in this city. There is not a righteous man in this city except Lot is called righteous later in the Bible. They all come to his door and they all form a mob around his house. Now, there has been some damage done in downtown Indianapolis lately by some rioters, right? But in that crowd, there were many, many peaceful protesters. Many of the people there meant good and were doing peaceful things, and a few violent people made everyone look bad, right? But this mob that has formed outside of Lot's house is not that way. Every last one of them has a wicked aim in what they intend to do there. And they make that demand known in verse 5. They demand to, to know, as they use the word, the men that have come and visited them. They don't realize it's angels. Uh, they just want those men with a completely fleshly and unnatural lust. So they call out and demand, expecting that Lot would bring those men out there and that they could have their way with those men, probably violently in a gang sort of fashion. But in verses 6 and 7, you see Lot try to warn them. There's one man in the city trying to warn them, saying, Brothers, this is wicked. Don't do this. But you see that they turn on him. And they say, We're going to deal worse with you for warning us than we would have with them. 2 Peter 2 verse 7 says that Lot was greatly distressed by the wickedness in the city that he had seen over the course of years. And you can see that distress in what is probably the most disturbing detail in the story. In verse 8, he panics, and he offers his two virgin daughters to the mob just in a desperate attempt to try to save the visitors. Now, I think I probably don't have to tell you that that is an incredibly foolish thing to do, how wrong and just devastatingly wrong he was to offer his daughters in that way. The question probably on all of our minds is, why on earth did he do that, right? Lot, what were you thinking, right? Well, have you ever been in a distressed situation and completely panicked and done something that half a second later you realized, oh, that was not good. That was not, I panicked. That was not smart, right? I believe that's what Lot was doing here. He was distressed, as Second Peter says, over the sin he saw. And in a great panic, he did something completely out of character and completely wrong and not right offering, if you can imagine it, his virgin daughters that were both betrothed to be married to this mob in the place of the guests. But that is not the point of that detail. The point of the detail would send shivers down your spine, and I think it may. The men say no. In other words, just the plainest way I can put this, Gang raping two young virgin women was not wicked enough for these men. 
they wanted to do the same thing to the male visitors. The women were not enough. Can you see how desperately wicked the men of this city were? And then finally we see the angels rescue Lot, and in verse 11, uh, we get this terrible image of the blind men of the city. Can you imagine them wearing themselves out all night, groping at the door in their passion and lust for this gang rape they want to commit? I don't know that I have ever seen a more stark picture of human wickedness in all of the Bible or in anything I have ever read or seen. And it is meant to leave us feeling devastated. If you're here right now thinking, boy, I'm sure glad I came to church this morning, uh, you are right where the Lord wants you. Uh, he wants us to look at this and just be crushed at the wickedness of mankind. And here's the thing. However despicable and wicked and detestable that looks to you, our smallest infractions look that way to our holy and good God. He says that our righteousness, our most righteous moment is filthy rags before him. In the splendor of his holiness where angels must cover their face and say, holy, 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 even our most righteous moments look that detestable to him for he is holy. That is why in Isaiah 6, the angels cover their faces and feet and say, holy, 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 but not Isaiah. He does not say, holy, holy, holy. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord most high. When we read this story, we must think we are part of a human race that does things like that. And all of the madness we see around us, we are part of a human race that does things like that. We are meant to see the starkness, the depth of our sin. And the Lord means to bless us by it. So embrace it. Don't, don't resist it, but embrace it. For through it, the Lord will bless you. So that's truth number two. Number one, his worthiness to be worshipped and obeyed at all times. Number two, our complete failure to worship and obey him. If you embrace those two, the next one comes naturally, even though it's terrible news, and that is that we deserve the devastating judgment that we are headed for. This story is also perhaps the most stark picture of that judgment in the Bible. I'll spend just a few moments pointing out a few details that are meant to leave us uncomfortable. But before we do that, look in verse 14, how quickly Lot's sons-in-laws are to dismiss his words, All right? We hear it and we just think it's a joke, right? A man of God gets in the pulpit and speaks of destruction and we're prone to just laugh and say, who is this fire and brimstone preacher that would dare to say this? And there are Lot's sons-in-laws sons -in doing the same thing, just thinking that he is joking. And then in verse 16, even Lot lingers. The one who has heard it from angels isn't quick to leave. Even he lingers. So do you see yourself in either of those characters? I see myself in them both prone to not take this seriously, prone to linger around and not leave the ways of the world as quickly as I should. But here are the pictures that ought to make us run as quickly as we can. First, in verses 15 and 17, you see the words swept away. It is a judgment that will sweep away everyone. 
How much water would it take to sweep all of us off this field? A terrible amount of water. Uh, and that is meant to show us how large the destruction is that would sweep everyone away. In verse 24, you see stinging images of fire and sulfur. And you see it clarified twice. It is from the Lord. His name is mentioned twice. And then a third time, from heaven. So there's just no mistake. This, he's, not, he's not letting Satan torture us. No, the Lord, from his own hand, sends fire down upon to that city and sulfur. Why sulfur? Well, the fire would destroy everything. And then uh, sulfur, basically salt. Uh, men of war in that day, after they destroyed a city, would sometimes walk through the city with their army, throwing salt all over the ground. And once they did that, not only was everything built there destroyed, but nothing could grow there for generations. They were condemning that city to destruction for a long time. Don't come back here. Don't try to grow anything here. There is salt on the ground. And so the Lord sends down fire to destroy it and then sulfur upon a land that at that time was lush and green like this field around us. But if you visit it today, it is a barren salt-filled wasteland and the sea next to it is full of salt and supports no life such that it is still today, thousands of years later, called the Dead Sea. That is the sea that is next to salt. How did it get so salty? This was the day that it happened when the Lord rained down fire and sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. You can see in verse 25 the totality of the destruction. He repeats over and over again, in case you don't get it right, all the inhabitants and all of the valley and nothing or everything that grew on the ground, the totality of the destruction. You can see that Lot's wife turns back in verse 26 and she becomes a pillar of salt. Now, you and I have seen on movie screens and perhaps on YouTube great destruction, right? Al-Qaeda beheadings blockbuster movies with great explosions. I mean, we are people who have seen destruction and know what it's like, but never have you seen destruction so great that it killed you the moment you saw it. Lot's wife turned around and just on sight of that destruction turns to a pillar of salt. How terrifying must this have been? And then finally in verse 28, Abraham looks out and sees the smoke rising up from the land afterward like a furnace. You've probably seen pictures of great wildfires in California and in Africa and other places. And maybe you can imagine that little stripe of orange on the bottom, which was maybe white at that point, I don't know. And the thick black smoke just rising up off of it, something like what Abraham saw that day. And it is meant to leave us as devastated as it left that land. And you might ask why, why, if you're a Christian, you know why this is in your Bible. Why, why on earth would we spend whatever, 40 minutes or so dwelling on this story today? Well, the reason is that the New Testament, to put a sense of urgency in us, reminds us this story, this picture is meant to be a picture of the destruction that is coming upon everyone at the day of the appearing of Jesus Christ. Let me read you a few verses in the New Testament. Jude verse seven says that, that they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. An example to us, that's what they're meant to be. Second Peter two says that uh, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example 
of what is going to happen to the ungodly. You see the pattern. And Luke 17 says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You have those stark images that we would rather not look at, that I would rather not tell you about, so that we have a picture of what is coming when Jesus Christ returns with a two-edged sword in his mouth, and the sword coming out of his mouth is the word of God. What we have seen today is a picture of what is coming. So those are the three things we must understand and embrace before we are ready to receive the good news of Jesus. He is worthy of our complete worship and obedience. We have failed miserably to give it to him, even refused to give it to him. And we are worthy of the total and devastating destruction that is coming when Jesus Christ returns. If you embrace that, if you are willing to hear that and not sneer at it, you are ready to hear the good news of Jesus. Because the question that we ought to be asking is, if we deserve that, how could God pardon us and be just? What way of salvation could, could possibly save us from a destruction like that? God would be unjust to just forgive us. What solution could God in his wisdom find that might solve this problem and, and bring many back to him without being unjust? And the answer is found when the sinless Jesus Christ is nailed to a cross, God himself in the flesh, suffering torment and dying, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would the spotless lamb of God cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is that in that moment, God in heaven poured out all of his righteous anger stored up for us upon his son, Jesus. That that sacrifice of the death of the son of God has fully paid for the sins of anyone who would trust in him. That is the safety and refuge that I call you to cling to right now. There is good news found in Jesus Christ. And you wonder right now, well, what must I do? How do I receive that salvation? It's very simple. You just cry out to him and trust him for it. Salvation is received by faith. It just means trusting him. There's not a magic card. There's not a magic prayer. There's not a magic thing you must do. It will change you completely, and you will live a very different life, and we will help you do that. Uh, I do want to ask you if in this moment right now you are willing to trust Jesus for the first time to save you from sin, from death, and punishment. Would you tell everyone, would you tell us so we can know and begin to guide you in following Jesus? He is the safety we must cling to. So cling to him. And church, as you leave today, would you leave with a fuller and greater picture of the glory of God, who is worthy of our obedience, worthy of all of this, who can justly destroy a city and not be wrong to do so? What a powerful and holy God he is. We can't worship him fully if we don't embrace every good thing about him. So let's do that. There is judgment coming, but they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I urge you, call upon him today. 
Let's pray together.